0: Let me ask you a question. When you think of Jesus, what comes to mind? And when you ask a question like that, all kinds of things could actually come to our minds, right? I asked my daughter this yesterday. I said, babe, when you think of Jesus, what comes to mind? What do you think of when I I talk to you about Jesus? What do you think of Jesus? And this is what she said. She said, he's nice. And he has long hair and a beard, and blue eyes and freckles. And he has sandals on and has a white dress, because in heaven, that's what you have to wear. Not exactly accurate. I'll have to work on that a little bit, but she has a perception of who Jesus is, as we all do, and people, that's how it works. People often have their own ideas of of who Jesus is. Some that have a relationship with Jesus, their view of Jesus might be a little bit more biblically accurate than someone who doesn't know Jesus at all. Or maybe they've had a a passing um, kind of experience with Jesus through maybe growing up in church or whatever it might be. But we all have different ideas of who Jesus is. In the 90s, some of you might remember this. Some of you were born in the 90s probably. I don't know. But in the 90s, within the Christian subculture, there was this trend. There was this thing that happened. And it was really kind of weird, but it became popular for people to wear bracelets that had the initials WWJD on them. (laughs) Somebody was a fan. (laughs) And it stood for, What Would Jesus Do? And if you're curious, you can still get a 24-pack on Amazon for $14. (laughs) I just checked yesterday. I didn't even know they were still available. I didn't know that was still a thing. But the problem was, with his whole campaign of what would Jesus do, was that not everyone was clear on what the answer was to the question. Because the answer often was filtered through people's ideas of who Jesus was and what he would do. And the answer was not always informed by scripture, which should be our sole source for understanding who Jesus is and what he would do. And so today we're introducing this new series, as Pastor Isaac mentioned, and we're looking at sort of some of the oddities of Jesus or some of the things that made him unique and some of the things that uh, made his ministry special and how there was no one else like him in human history. And we're going to be looking at some of these things. And sometimes, uh, for, over some of these weeks, we'll look and we'll go, oh, that's kind of weird. And then that will be sort of our response. And other times, it won't be as weird as much as we will be uh, highlighting the uniqueness of him and what was special about him. And this morning, I'd like to look at the biblical record of how Jesus was revealed at the onset of his ministry. How was he introduced and we'll be in John chapter 1, like I mentioned, and we see him being introduced by a man by the name of, or a man known as, John the Baptist. And in this passage, there's, there's a lot that's packed in. There's like a sermon in every verse almost, but we won't be able to cover it all, but I'd like to highlight just a couple very key things that help us understand who Jesus is. So if you'll read along with me, John chapter 1, and we're going to be starting at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, to ask John the Baptist, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. And they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said in verse 23, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And now they had been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet. And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stand, stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap." of whose sandal I am not worthy to to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, as the messiah but for this purpose i came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to israel let's pray jesus as we get into this your word we pray that you would reveal yourself to us thank you lord that you are a god that surprises us at times you're not predictable we can't make uninformed assumptions about you, you are unique, you are special, and you are the one and only, obviously. And Lord, we're not interested in serving a God who we can completely comprehend and completely understand, because that would be to diminish who you are and what kind of God would it be that we would serve when we can wrap our finite minds around him. And so Lord, just reveal yourself to us, give us sensitive hearts to receive these things, ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to, to comprehend all that you're revealing in your word to us about yourself. We thank you, Jesus, for the opportunity that we have to gather like this. And so may we now be ministered to by your Holy Spirit and embrace and accept these truths and live out the implications for our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. So this John the Baptist, he's a very interesting man. And he would have been in his late 30s. He dressed rather strangely. His fashion choices would have included wearing clothes made from camel's hair. And his favorite um, food was eating locusts and honey. Um, How about that for the next fad diet, right? I don't know which one that would categorize as, but... um, But but grasshoppers, what did somebody say? It was what? That would be the keto? All right, great. Shows you what I know about diets. Actually, I wondered about that. Sounds yummy. But you know, we joke about fad diets or whatever, but I mean, this is this is the this is the account here written for us in Scripture, revealing who John the Baptist is, and that's what he ate apparently. And his ministry was special because it ended 400 years of prophetic silence at the end of um, the prophetic ministry as recorded for us in the Old Testament. The the last book being written would be in Malachi, and there was this gap of time where where there was silence from God to his people, and his John the Baptist ministry ended that season, ended that 400 years of prophetic silence, and now John the Baptist is the last of the prophets, and his calling, uh, his calling was to prepare the way for the Messiah, and he had a powerful message that attracted people. People from the surrounding cities would come to, to him and to, to hear what he had to say and to, and to check him out, According to Matthew chapter three, we see that, 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 that he was growing in popularity. And we know him as John the Baptist, not because the kind of a church that he went to, but because of his practice, that as people would come, his practice would be to, to baptize them with water, which was just an outward sign and a symbolic cleansing reflecting their inward repentance. And the response was so tremendous, and the response was so popular that even the religious establishment had to take note and, and they started to pay attention. They sent a delegation to investigate him and they came to him and they asked him, who are you? And his response was very interesting. But if you were asked that question, what would you say? We often play that game of wanting to make our sound, ourselves sound more important than we really are. When was the last time you edited your resume. (laughs) You know, we tend to sort of maybe not completely lie or be dishonest, but we tend to put a spin on everything to make ourselves look good. When people ask who we are, what comes to our mind is, Probably, how can I put the best foot forward? How can I seem impressive? How can I seem important? Whose name can I drop to borrow somebody else's significance and to borrow somebody else's importance so that this person that I'm talking to now is more impressed with me? So they ask him this, who are you? And, and we see that in verse 19. And before he tells them the answer to the question, who are you, he answers a question that they weren't asking, but he, tell them who, he tells them who he was not. It's quite possible that they had heard the rumors that he was the Messiah, but he tells them that he isn't the Messiah. He says, I'm not the Christ, which was the title for the Messiah. So in verse 21, they say, okay, well, if you're not the Christ, then are you Elijah and Elijah was, if you don't know, an Old Testament prophet. And in, in, the, vast, in the last verse of, of Malachi, as I mentioned earlier, it says that God would send them the prophet Elijah. That's the last verse of the Old Testament. And that's the, the parting words. And, and I will send to you the prophet Elijah. And that prophecy had been given 400 years earlier. So for four centuries there was this sense of expectation in Israel that Elijah was going to come back again. And I was talking to Pastor Isaac yesterday, as and he, he happens to be Jewish, and we were talking about um, how even now it's a common practice and tradition within the Jewish community that when they observe Passover, they leave a seat open and remaining for the prophet Elijah. And this is based on the statement from Moses in the 18th chapter of Deuteronomy, where it says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, uh, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Actually, I'm so sorry. That was to the next question. I jumped ahead. So if you're not Elijah, are you the prophet? And he's like, no, I'm not the prophet. And this is why they're asking that. There was this expectation, this, this prophetic utterance from the 18th chapter of Deuteronomy that, the, that, I'm, that there, there'll be a prophet that's raised up like me from among you, from your brothers, and, and you need to listen to him. And so even to this last question, John says, no. Who are you? I am not the Christ. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not Elijah. Are you the prophet? And he says, no. So they repeat their original question. Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. People have sent us with this task. We need to give a report of who you are. See, John knew who he wasn't, and he knew who he was. In verse 23, to explain who he was, he answers by referencing this prophecy in Isaiah that was actually about him. We see there in verse 23, he says... And this is his answer. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So, no big deal. The prophet Isaiah only prophesied about me 700 years ago. But here's the thing he wasn't boasting, he was answering their question. He was being truthful about who he was without embellishing, because he really was the forerunner for the Christ. Alan Redpath, an old-school British pastor and author, said, it's as dishonest to deny what you are just as it is to claim to be what you're not. It's as dishonest to deny what you are just as it is to claim to be what you're not. When we don't know who we are, what do we do? We tend to rely on everybody else to tell us who we are. And when we don't know what our identity is, we try to fit inside the mold that everybody else has for us. And we try to, to fit in the spots that they think, or that we think that they want us to fill. And so we become like comedians, uh, not comedians, because that would be weird. I need some water. But we become like chameleons. That's what I was trying to say. We can be comedic chameleons, I guess, but, but we try to be like chameleons, and what do chameleons do? They adjust to fit within their environment, and that's what we can be like. We get a sense of what somebody might be looking for or what might impress them, as I referenced earlier, and we try to fit into that mold. It's so, like I said about the resumes, because your resume probably alters depending on the job that you're applying for. So when we don't know who we are, we try to become who we think others want us to be. And we shift based on the opinions of of others. But if we really know who we are, we'll be comfortable with who we're not. And when we know who we are, we'll know what we've been called to. And when we know what we've been called to, We'll be okay with what we're not. And when we know who we are, we don't have to chase significance in the opinions of others or other things. You're not your job. You're not the car you drive. You're not the clothes you wear. You're not your bank account. You're not your level of success or achievement. You're not your relationship status. You're not... How many likes you get on Instagram? And when we, but here's the problem, when we cling to these things, it's often because we find our identity in them and we think, if I lose these things, do I lose me? It's one of the reasons why professional athletes have so much trouble retiring. Their best playing days are behind them, long gone, and they just can't let it go. Because throughout playing sports as children, high school, entering into college athletics, and then professional sports, it's become such a big part of them. And that's where they find their identity. And so beyond their playing years, they find themselves going through an identity crisis. But John knew who he was. He knew that he, was, he knew what he was supposed to do. He knew what his calling was, and his calling was to proclaim the coming of the Messiah. And so John is saying to them, listen, listen to what I'm saying, because what I'm talking about is the one who is greater than me. In his eternal character and in the nature of his work, he is so far above me that I'm not even worthy to untie his shoelaces, verse 27. In other words, this one is the Messiah. It's my job to proclaim to you the coming of the Messiah. And you're challenging me, and you're wondering by what authority I baptize people, and you're asking me who I am, and I'm telling you that who I am is quite insignificant compared to whom, the, the one whom I am here to reveal to you. From the very beginning of the Old Testament, hope is building that someone is coming. In the promise to Adam and Eve, as they are driven out of the Garden of Eden, there is the hope that, that there is one that is coming that would bruise the serpent's head that had deceived them. That hope increases throughout the whole prophetic record of the Old Testament, but by the end of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, he has still not come. And the Old Testament is filled with prophecies still to be fulfilled. But here, the very next day after this exchange, John sees Jesus coming. And he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one that we've been waiting for, the one that has seemed almost so elusive the one that at times we felt abandoned by, and even in the most recent history for them, 400 years of silence, this is the one. Behold, look, pay attention. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There he is, I told you, I told you he was coming, and here he is. This is the one I was talking about. Verse 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me and i myself did not know him as the messiah but for his but for this purpose i came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to israel john's purpose his calling was to prepare the way for the lord to reveal jesus but i want you to take note of a few things as he's here to reveal jesus I want you to take note of how he refers to him in verse 23, and I want you to see how he refers to him in verse 29. In verse 23, he refers to him as the Lord, prepare the way for the Lord. That was, he was the fulfillment of that. John the Baptist was the fulfillment of that prophecy, and his job was to prepare the way for the Lord, verse 23. So he calls him the Lord. And then in verse 29, he refers to him as the Lamb. So as I mentioned earlier, that's that preparing the way for the Lord, the the voice crying in the wilderness, that is a reference to the prophet Isaiah. And the Hebrew word for Lord in this passage that he's quoting is Yahweh, the proper name for God. So what's going on here is that he's revealing Jesus to them as God himself. And that's a pretty significant claim to make for sure. He's saying, this is God. I came to prepare the way, and I want you to know that he is the Lord. And then he also refers to him as the lamb. And I, I want to park here for a minute because I want to show the relationship between Lord and lamb and the implications as it relates to Um, our understanding of what it means to know Jesus and our understanding of the gospel. I want to sit on this for a second. I want to shift gears. If you read through the Old Testament, you will see that there are animal sacrifices throughout it, all the way from the first accounts of Abel, who was the son of Adam and Eve. Abel offers up a lamb to God, and that pleased God. We see Abraham made offerings to God. The people of Israel were taught at the foot of Mount Sinai to bring certain animals and offer the blood and meat of those animals to God. Every morning and every evening, there were animals slain in the temple in Jerusalem. This is seen throughout the Old Testament, and it's clear through the sacrificial system that there would be no atonement for sins without the shedding of blood. But why? Why? it would all point toward the great sacrifice that was to come, that of Jesus, the very Lamb of God who would sacrificially give his own life for us. So every sacrifice in the Old Testament was a foreshadowing that someone was coming and would make sense of it all. And not only do you find in the Old Testament a deep sense of of, uh, no, no do, you, do, you, do you see in the Old Testament these sacrifices that for the most part go unexplained as they pointed forward, but you also see that there's this, this sense of, of longing, these unsatisfied longings. From the beginning of the Bible, people are longing to be better than they are because the whole story of mankind starts with man sinning. And we see that there's a longing to be free from the struggle from the evil within and wishing somehow that we could get a hold of it and eliminate it. Do you ever feel that way? I feel that way. And there's times I wish I could do like a surgical procedure to actually grab it and pull it out of me and set it aside and be done with it. As I grow tired of falling short, of hurting people, and offending God, But that longing has been in the human heart since the fall of man, ever since the Garden of Eden, the sin that was committed, that was then passed down to all of us from our first parents, it created this brokenness in the world that we've been resisting ever since. All through the record of the Bible, there's this cry for deliverance, to be free at last from the power and the reign of sin. But here's the good news. The good news is that Scripture reveals that only God himself could remedy that. That might seem a little bit too exclusive. That might seem a little bit too narrow. That might seem a difficult hoop. But that's the good news, that there is at least a remedy, and God himself could do that. And this is where the Lord and the Lamb come together so beautifully. Jesus, who never sinned, would become the sacrificial lamb for for the sins of the world. His sacrificial and substitutionary death, meaning in our place, would appease divine wrath against sin and obtain salvation for mankind. And it was his death that did that. And then the resurrection, when the stone was rolled away three days later and he rose again, that proved that the sacrifice was sufficient. Now, in light of that, let's look at John's ministry. Let's consider John's ministry. John's ministry was limited. John's ministry was external, and he could only go so far. He could help express through baptism the desire for our heart to change, but he could do nothing to, do to, to change anyone's heart. And even baptism itself, being an external thing, had no spiritual or transformative power. He could not change the heart. Baptism would not change the heart, because that's the work of Jesus. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And when we place our faith in Jesus, the Lord and the Lamb, that is what happens. Because he's the Messiah, the fulfiller of the promises, the promises that seem to go so un- unfulfilled for so long. He was the Messiah. He was the Christ. He was the Lamb of God the fulfiller of the Old Testament sacrifices and he's the satisfier of our longings for purity and freedom and that that deep desire that was within us as we recognized our shortcomings, he is the one that can satisfy those greatest longings for us to be separated from our sin. See, what happens is we carry our guilt into the divine courtroom and there we are pronounced guilty But the Lamb of God, the judge, then steps forward and accepts our penalty and dies in our place. His death was, as I mentioned a second ago, substitutionary, so we could have life. And when Jesus was murdered on the cross, he was not murdered for his own sin, but he was murdered for mine and for yours. And he died so we could stand before God. Who no longer sees us as guilty but washed in Christ's blood. We are cleansed of our guilt and shame because the Lamb took that from us. That doesn't mean that at times we don't still feel that guilt and shame. And I know that there are people in this room that still have a sense of guilt and shame that is constantly with them. And the reason why I know that is because it's part of the human experience. It's just, it is what it is. But I want you to know today, Christian, he died so that we could have confidence as we stand before God, free of guilt and free of shame. I want you to know that the perfect lamb of God, the sacrifice for our sins was acceptable and he did away with those things. Now, our sin should affect us in the sense that if we we do sin, there should be a sense of, of uh, remorse, it, 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 it should affect us because we know that it affects and offends a holy God. But our response is to not to then be overwhelmed and overcome by guilt and shame. Our response should be to, rec- to, should be to recognize how far we have fallen from God's holy standard. But because Jesus is the lamb, it should compel us and cause us to worship because the sacrifice of the lamb was acceptable. For so long, they would sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice to cover sin. But they had to keep doing it, because they kept sinning. And Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, comes on the scene, and once and for all, he dies on the cross, accepting uh, the penalty for our sins, and he's on the cross, and he says, it is finished. So our response in recognizing that is to worship him because we know what we have done, but we also know what he has done. So the question I have for you today is, do you see him as Lord and do you see him as the lamb? He is the Lord, he's God himself And he is the lamb, the perfect substitutionary sacrifice. Some of us accept him as Lord, but we won't let him be the lamb. Yeah, he's my God, I believe in him, I place my faith in him, but man, I gotta punish myself for the sins that I've committed. I need to drag myself through the dirt just to prove even to myself that I'm really sorry and that I'm really broken over the way that I fall short. We accept him as Lord, but we don't let him be the lamb. We have this idea that he's God, but we've gotta save ourselves. That is antithetical to the gospel. If that were possible, Jesus wouldn't have had to die. But that was impossible, which is why it's such an amazing thing. It's the beauty of the gospel that Jesus came and he died in our place because there was no other way. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And others of us accept him as the lamb, but we won't let him be the Lord. He forgave my sins, and so that's great. And maybe I'll completely, completely submit my life to him or maybe I won't. But I said this, I pray the sinner's prayer, whatever that is, and I go to church and I do these things and yeah, he's, yeah I, I intellectually accept that he died on the cross for me because I was taught that in Sunday school or whatever. But we don't submit to him as the Lord of our lives. We don't commit and submit our lives to him in service. But I love how these two things go together, Lord and Lamb. He could only be the Lamb because he's the Lord. There's nothing else and no one else that could atone for our sin. I want you to know that the gospel is not amazing because you're worthy of God's grace. The gospel is amazing because you are unworthy of God's grace. That's what makes it amazing. And he loves you just as you are. No, 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 I'm still a sinner. He doesn't love me like this because he is holy and I'm a sinner. And those two things don't go together. No, well, you're right, but he sent his son to Bring those two worlds together because what he does is he cleanses us of our sins and he credits to us his righteousness so that now when we stand before God, God sees us in the righteousness of Christ, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The gospel is amazing because in our wickedness, in our unrighteousness, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our brokenness, it's there that Jesus steps in. All the time, I hear people of no particular faith background, just people in general, due to the human experience, expressing what a messed up world we live in. And there's this and there's that. Like every Uber ride I have, there's, you know, <laughs> there's something going on. And that's how the conversation goes. And you know what I love about that? I love that it opens a door to share the gospel. Because all they're saying is that the world is broken, and we are broken, and people are broken and we're all screwed up. And there's a glimmer of hope that we have when we see human goodness and human compassion and those sorts of things. And we're so amazed by those things because in comparison, the world is so messed up. But see, that's the thing. It wasn't always that way. Sin came into the world and distorted God's perfect design. And in our brokenness, we try to improve ourselves, we try to better ourselves. But in our brokenness, all we can take are broken paths. And so we pursue all these things that will never actually take us out of our brokenness. And we seek satisfaction and fulfillment and betterment through all kinds of things, whether it's self-help or whatever it might be. We try to find significance in our success and in our jobs or whatever it might be. Sometimes we, it's even in the way that we cope with our brokenness, and we medicate ourselves with drugs or alcohol or whatever. But that's not the way out of brokenness. There's only one way out of brokenness, and that's in Jesus. Jesus takes us out of the brokenness. And if we would just repent and turn from our sin and place our faith in Jesus, that's the way out of the brokenness. Because He died on the cross for our sins. Three days later, he was resurrected again, as I said earlier, proving that his sacrifice was acceptable. And now we turn in faith, and through Jesus, we are restored into a right relationship with God. And I would encourage you, our church family, be ambassadors for God like John the Baptist, be one who declares Jesus. Be one who reveals Jesus to people, whether it's the Uber ride. I mean, where's he gonna go? (laughs) Because wherever he goes, you're going too. (laughs) To your friends, to your coworkers. We need to be declarers and proclaimers of the gospel, of who Jesus is and what he came to do of the fact that he is both Lord and Lamb. That's this weird oddity of Jesus, that he's the Lord and he's the Lamb. And we have the opportunity to share that with people. Because here's the thing, the gospel is not just for you. It's for you to share with others. The gospel is for you, yes, but it's not just for you. It's for you to share with others. That is our calling as responsible disciple makers. And if you are a follower of Jesus, that's what he's called us to do, to make disciples. I want to show you something. So I was having a conversation with, this is another illustration about my daughter. Uh, I was having a conversation with her and, and she said this a while ago and I had to write it down. Actually, I think I may have even recorded it and then transcribed it. I don't remember, but um, she was talking about the ways that she's trying to talk to her friends at school about Jesus. And she said, "You know how the Bible tells people to tell people about Jesus? Technically, I do that. <laughs> and then she says, she gives us account of where she asked her friend, whose name I won't mention but I asked her if she loves Jesus. And she said, I don't love him. I don't even know him. So I said, well, I'll teach you. He's an amazing man and he died for our sins. And then she interrupted me and said, What's sin? And she said, well, it's interesting you ask because we live in brokenness, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so she interrupted me and said, What's sin? And I said, sin is something bad we do. Let's say, for example, I don't listen to my mom or dad or I tell a lie. So then I asked her, now that you know him, have you decided to love him? And she said, well, okay." And then she says, so I got my first person to love Jesus. That's a cute story, obviously. And I, I didn't tell her to do that, but I love that she was mindful of the fact that she knows who Jesus is and what little she knows of Jesus because she thinks he has blue eyes and freckles. She wanted to tell other people about him. We start to lose that, don't we? We start to lose sight of those things. We start to live our lives in such a way that we've lost a theology of the lost. And we We are chasing our own pursuits unintentionally, selfishly. We're we're busy with our lives and we're busy with our jobs and all these sorts of things. But what we need to do is we need to wake up every morning and understand that there's people who don't know Jesus. And that must become a filter and a context for everything else we do in our lives. When you go to work, you're not going there to work there as an employee of that company. You're going there to work there as an employee of that company who is a discipler of Jesus Christ. On the sports team that you play on, it's not just that you you enjoy athletics, but you're in relationship with people who can learn about Jesus Christ. Whatever it is, You need to understand, we need to understand that the context for everything else in our lives fits within the fact that we are first followers of Jesus and we've been commissioned by him to carry out the message of Jesus, to reveal Jesus, and to declare Jesus as the Lord and the Lamb for the betterment of other people so that people would come to know him. But we can slip into this pattern or living our lives in that way. But it is our calling, John the Baptist knew who he was, and he lived his life in service to Jesus. And so may we, like John the Baptist, commit our lives in service to Jesus, to bring glory to Jesus. And may the biggest contribution we make in anyone else's life be that they come to know Jesus as the Lord and the Lamb, and may we do so as responsible followers of Jesus and responsible disciple makers as we wake up every day and as we live on the West Side as embedded missionaries. Let's pray.